Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. for joining me this morning to hear about improving the efficiency of defense dollars. My name is Fred Bartos, and I'm the Senior Policy Analyst for Defense Budget here at the Heritage Foundation. An integral part of the Heritage Foundation's mission is to support a strong national defense, which means both the resources allocated to defense are sufficient and effectively obligated. Today, I want to talk to you about a recent paper that is posted on the chat box on the effectiveness of resources obligated at DOD. In government, there's something called one-year money. Resources which can only be obligated within one fiscal year, and after that period is done, they cannot be used for any new obligations. This creates a time crunch, which combined with other factors that we will discuss today, creates the phenomenon of use it or lose it. Use it or lose it largely appears as a crunch to obligated resources before the end of the fiscal year, which likely leads to less optimal spending decisions and definitely rush decision-making. The current incentives in the system push government financial managers towards accumulating some resources throughout the end of the year and then over-obligating them before their expiration at the end of the year. The question then becomes, how can Congress and the broader federal government better incentivize good stewardship of federal taxpayers' dollars? I believe that part of the answer resides in giving three measures of increased flexibility in financial management. One, giving some carryover authority for DOD. Two, listening to 80-20 time restriction and obligation rates. And three, speeding up reprogramming and transfer. Many agencies in the federal government can carry over a percentage of unobligated funds into the next fiscal year. DOD should be able to do the same. Even a 5% carryover would substantially increase the flexibility of the department. On the 80-20 rule, currently DOD cannot allocate more than 20% of its budget in the last two months of the fiscal year. The idea was to reduce the time crunch that creates use it or lose it but the effect has been to create yet another time crunch and yet another deadline. Congress should test ways to change it and should start by studying the effects that looser regulations on the 80-20 rule had in 2018. Last but not least, Congress should speed up transfers and reprogramming. They usually take at least three months, which is unacceptably long when you're working within a 12-month time window. Most reprogramming requests are approved without any changes by Congress. At a minimum, this could be fast-tracked, enabling the department to better manage expiring resources. Congress could study what are the common characteristics of those requests that are approved without any changes. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and now I'd like to invite both panelists to turn their cameras on. I'll introduce both of them, ask a few questions from each, likely interject some of my thoughts as well, and then open up for questions from the audience. So please start sending those questions right now. It's on your chat box. Firstly, the distinguished bearded gentleman is Philip Kondreva. He's a senior lecturer, lecturer of budgeting and public policy at the Naval Postgraduate School in California. So it's really early for him. So if he has multiple coffees dur- during the event, that's why. He literally wrote a few books on defense budgeting and financial management. And he's teaching the current financial management professionals that are navigating these questions in real time. The equally distinguished but unbearded gentleman is Eric Lofgren. 
Eric is a senior fellow at the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. He's also the host of a great podcast called Acquisition Talk, which after this event is over, you guys should download it. So kicking off for the conversation, Professor Kandreva, how do you see the problems in budget execution at DOD as being a legal hurdle or more of a managerial challenge? Can you explain the difference between those two and how you understand the issue? Yeah, Eric, before or Fred, before I start, I do want to thank you and Heritage Foundation for inviting me to this panel. And I have to give the usual disclaimer as a federal employee that these are my opinions and not those of the Navy, the Department of Defense, or the federal government. I don't actually like that distinction legal versus managerial. I took a different approach to this issue, which I think is why you invited me. I view it as a governance issue. So managers manage organizations, governance manages managers. And so managers work within this governance environment, which consists of four key things. Laws, things like Appropriations and Anti-Deficiency Act, administrative rules, like the financial management regulations and spend plans and target rates of obligation, institutional norms, and you know, I knew I was going to forget, organizational structures. <laughs> you have controllers, contracting officers, program managers, and this network of people involved in um, spending money. And those four things together do three things for that manager. They prescribe what that manager must do. They enable that manager to do those things, but they also constrain that manager. And so in my view, this user-lose phenomenon is the natural result of this governance framework that the managers have to operate within. And Phil, I know that you have looked at the issue of use it or lose it from a very different perspective of mine and looking at solutions and ways to tackle it or when to tackle it. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the challenges and the possible solutions for it? Yeah, I think I think it's important to not only understand that this is a multidimensional issue, right? We've got these four factors that are doing three different things to managers, but I do think we need to match the remedy to the cause. And I've not found much research looking at sort of root causes of this. And many of those that have sought it out are having trouble finding good empirical evidence that it exists. But just to rattle off a couple of causes and what sort of remedy may be appropriate, if the cause is mismanagement, then maybe we need more transparency up and down and across the chain of command to see what people are doing with the money. If the issue is a misallocation, then we need to understand requirements and costs better and maybe have more flexibility in the way we allocate that money. Late appropriations, right? There's two remedies for that. Congress can either appropriate it on time, but their track record is horrible. So my recommendation, the more pragmatic approach is build that into the budget, right? Assume that appropriation is going to be late when we put the, the plan together. I think reprogramming rules are too strict as to you, and they should be loosened a bit. And I've got some ideas for that. I think contracting could be more flexible, more use of simplified acquisition procedures, more capacity to do anticipatory contracting even if the money's not quite there yet. And finally, I think we need a mechanism to resurrect expired but still open appropriations. For instance, FY20 money is currently expired, but FY20 procurement is not. And if we have an unobligated balance in FY20 O&M, why can't we reprogram that into FY20 procurement and sort of resurrect that spending authority and put it to use? So those are just rattling off a few ideas. Thank you, Bill. Mr. Lofgren, from your work, I would assume that the way to tackle user to lose it would be to manage for bigger portfolios that allow trade-offs between like, from different projects within that fiscal year. Is that a fair description of your thinking? 
Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, thanks for for having me. It's great to be with you and Phil. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head on in terms of my thinking on this. When I look at use it or lose it, reprogramming authorities, continuing resolutions, a lot of the problems that we keep finding in these are actually symptoms of a, of a much larger problem. So I wouldn't necessarily say like if we tackle these things head on and increase our ability to reallocate money a little bit on the margins or improve some authorities, we're going to fix the fundamental issues and what's at the root of all this. And so what I think is actually the real problem is actually what the GAO found in their recent report on expiring and canceled funds, which was one, actual program needs being less than estimated, two, agencies not having authority to redirect funds, and three, unpredictable program costs. So it's no wonder that when they say, oh, military personnel costs, those are pretty predictable. We're just paying for bodies. We don't really have as big of a problem there, but for like these really complex weapon systems for RDT&E procurement and, and maintenance as well of these things, there is a ton of unpredictability. And so the fundamental issue here is how the portfolio aspect of that is a way to manage the risk and manage uncertainty by providing options. And so the budget is a forward-looking plan. It requires predictions about the future states of technology operations and even the economy. And so when we make all of these budgetary decisions, it's all about what will be in the future. And we're trying to, and we're almost like locking that down and taking it out of the manager's hands to be able to manage by real options. Actually, I agree with what Phil said in, tem in terms of governance. Managers manage the programs and governance manages the managers. I think he said something like that. And then the focus on misallocation and mismanagement, and we need more focus on the accountability piece. So I think the, the key to this portfolio concept is have high-level mission command objectives, leave the execution to the people involved who might know the best, but then have a rigorous way for checking up on what were the, the spending allocations, what did we get for those things, what is and what was, and then that will be able to help us figure out what will happen in the future. And so this portfolio management approach, I think, is one of the things that will actually move us forward and solve some of these other symptoms of that issue. Yeah, on that topic, especially the, the prediction element, one of the things that I was thinking recently is that if any, everyone programmed their budgets two years ago, everyone would have a cost overrun with face masks this, this year. And GAO would come and say, oh, no, you had a cost overrun with face masks and PPE equipment. And that's how we do it on, on the broader thing. So, Eric, political leaders have been talking about improving and changing the defense acquisition process basically since the nation first started building ships. I know that you enjoy growing through history. Can you talk a little bit about a time in the United States history that we were better or good at buying military goods? What are the main lessons that you see there? Yeah, I think there's definitely been a bunch of periods in the Department of Defense's history, and before it was Department of Defense, of course, or in Navy departments, where things were just different. Now, it's hard to say whether they're better or worse because we're from a different time now, but we can also look at what the commercial sector and international nations are doing and to judge for relative performance. But one of the things that happened was a big debate, actually, right around the time of those first six frigates was Jefferson and Hamilton, where they had a debate over appropriations. Should appropriations be specified for every single thing government will do? And that was Thomas Jefferson's approach. We should have an appropriation for everything. And then Alexander Hamilton's view was that's just not a good way of managing. It takes too much management. We can't actually get anything done if we try to micromanage in that way. And actually, Alexander Hamilton won out and, and Thomas Jefferson came to agree. He said, 
oh, this too tight a specification of the appropriations does have its evils. So we have been in this area of lump sum appropriations from about that time to about the 1950s. And the Budgeting and Accounting Act of 1921 was the first time we started to see the strictures on that. But really what we had was, and I think, that, again, this gets back to what Phil was saying, the appropriations were by object of expenditure and organization. So you had the Army's Ordnance Department or Department of Engineering, it, the Bureau of Ships in the Navy, right? These were organic items in the budget. So the budget focused on people and organizations and then empowered those people to actually create a lot of the programs so long as Congress and other folks in Comptroller had like oversight over where did that money go? Was it spent appropriately? And those types of issues. And as we shifted to a programmatic budget in the 1960s, particularly, even though that kind of got kicked off starting 1949, but really the 1960s were where it came home, that really changed the paradigm of how the Department of Defense was run. And I think that we need to look to see what were those lessons of that change, because we haven't really had a big type of budgetary reform in this manner since that time. And so we should, again, look at how do uh, commercial, how does the commercial industry work? How do other nations do it? What were the lessons from the past? And then see how can we move forward in the Department of Defense? And then you're going to write a rap about that so you can win the argument between Madison and Hamilton, right? That's the, the act from the Hamilton, the musical that got dropped. Unfortunately, so, right. And it's usually a good sign of progress when the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee is explaining to audiences what the PPB process is and talking about the need to update it. And just yesterday, we saw on the highlights of the NDA that was approved by the, the SAS that there is a commission to discuss PPB reform and those questions. If you were Senator Reid's advisor, what would be the number one item that you would want to improve in the budget process, being the commission or not? I'll let Phil go first. Oh my goodness. First thing to do to improve PPBE probably would be to ban PowerPoint because it's just a horrible communication mechanism. But seriously, I think it needs to be faster with fewer people involved. There's too much analysis for too little change. Only about 10% of the budget is really in play in any given budget cycle. If we have ships, we know what it's going to cost to operate them. We have people, we know what it costs to pay them. We have installations, they have to be maintained. There's not a whole lot on the margin that's being adjusted every year, but we have tens of thousands of people who are spending know, millions of hours building briefs and writing draft budgets and defending things. And the change is not all that significant from year to year. And, and then, if only with only about 10% of it in play, we then reprogram 2 or 3% during the year of execution. So I think we try way too hard to find something optimal when it's not possible, because optimal requires that everybody agree on an objective, and we don't all agree on the objective, right? So optimal is not even possible. So we should ban that word from our vocabulary too. But there should be fewer people involved, do it much faster, and make it a little more flexible, as Eric was saying. I also loved Eric's thought about fewer ex-ante controls and more ex-post controls. We don't do that very well. We try to manage it up front when I think we should be giving people a little more flexibility, but holding them more accountable for the results. Yeah, and I would just add to that, one of the things there seems to be tenure of position as a critical aspect to that accountability, because if I have a multi-decade program, 
where does accountability fall when this guy's only been here for three years and he's really just executing the plan and the budget plan that was actually put in place by his predecessor and his budget plan he won't be executing on, he'll be his successor. So that's one of the issues. But I agree, again, I completely agree with Phil that fixation on prediction and control of the future actually leads to these spiraling back-end O&M costs through our poor program allocation decisions, more than mismanagement, my belief. And then that spirals backward and gets us into this problem. So we need to make the Department of Defense look a little bit more like what technology is doing, right? Where you actually have lower marginal cost of reproduction and higher fixed cost of investments. That's what that's all that software is really about in AIML. And as our systems become software defined, we should expect that the processes of the Department of Defense should look more like that rather than an industrial era system of these linear walking through the stage gates of the budget activities in RDT&E, but then through the appropriations themselves. And so I'm not actually answering the question. The question was, what would I you know, say to Jack Reed? And what I would say to Jack Reed is, hey, look, we actually already have some portfolio experiments going on in the Department of Defense, if you just look hard enough. JIDO, out of Defense Threat Reduction Agency, is one. Strategic Capabilities Office is another. They're kind of dispersed around to a degree, but you could even almost call the Next Generation Air Dominance Program a portfolio of itself. And now it's not really clear whether is that portfolio actually a, a family of systems that they're developing, or is it just one aircraft? Because we did hear about that one uh, prototype that came out of it. And this is one of the, the issues. We might have some kind of portfolio in the uh, prototyping phase, but then we always kind of next down into a, like kind of a program of record. And I believe that this program of record concept, that's you know fully integrated stack system that is managed by an organization dedicated to it, and thus does not have these types of intercommunications. So we hope that the PBBE would create jointness out of the, the Department of Defense, but actually by creating these program stovepipes and stopping people from having this horizontal communication that was indicative of the political process that really was Department of Defense and uh, budget building in the past, that has all gone away. And now we have interoperability issues. So anyway, I would just say you can't, re you can't reform the Department of Defense as a whole instantaneously. Culture matters, and there's this kind of chicken or the egg problem between um, technical competence and culture, along with the portfolio aspects to give them the flexibility to actually uh, go out and implement that. So to get that flywheel started, where do you have the most talent? Then start slowly aggregating some of these uh, budgets into portfolios, experimenting with what contextual oversight looks like for them, and not like some universal cost growth metric uh, for them and then start slowly building that out where it makes sense rather than saying, bang, like we're going fully to this new model. And that's just never a good way of running such a complex organization as the Department of Defense. And that leads to actually a question from the audience that would be an interesting segue here. A member of the audience is asking if it's better to have the joint staff vet and determine acquisition spending or leave those decisions to service. And I think, Eric, you started touching on that in, in the sense of where is the expertise that would be like smart enough to make those decisions. Do you think it's a binary choice there or how would you go about picking those people that would be accountable and you're holding their, their feet to the fire on how the program is going? Yeah. The joint staff concept, is, it's actually very interesting, right, how it came out of Alayu Root and the whole kind of progressive movement. So we didn't have a joint staff really in the 1800s. Um, and the joint staff was actually pretty weak, especially in the Army. 
up until the 1950s when they got control of the budget. And the budget was actually because you had these bureau and, ar and arsenals that had a direct line to Congress and defended their own budgets to Congress, they were actually in a way fairly independent organizations and the staff uh, members were actually not able to get into procurement too much. And that kind of flipped, especially with, in 1958 with the Defense Reorganization Act and then with the, the PBBS. I think the proper role of the joint staff, it's interesting, right? Because the perennial problem of a staff is like the more competence in things it needs, you want it to do, the more it has to grow and the more it supplants the line organizations themselves. So I think one of the crucial concepts from the 40s and 50s that we can learn from is the dual hatting, where you had folks that were executing the programs, something like a program manager, or program executive officer, and they're dual hatted on these joint boards, like the research and development board, like the munitions board, and they would jointly come to decisions together where they had votes and they knew what each other's interests were. And I think this was a, actually a smart way, again, the political process of decision-making rather than presuming that we can determine proper programs of the future through root analysis that any third-party expert could then go and verify. So again, I think there's something to this kind of, and we see this at commercial industries where they have like Scrum of Scrums and Spotify has their guilds and chapters and all these things of trying to create these kind of matrix cross-functional like teams that spread information throughout the organization such that others know what each other are doing. And I'm a very big fan of Michael Poliani's Republic of Science, where he says, how does science progress? It's not because someone dictates that it will progress in such a way, because there was talk at the time in the 50s and 60s, like the Department of Defense, of having someone centrally direct research programs. And he said, no, you got to let people the researchers themselves determine their own programs. The program is not determined outside the context of the individuals coming up with it. And it's through their network of overlapping relationships that they hold each other into account through reputation and tests and verification of what works rather than a kind of central direction. And so I guess that's what I would say there. The joint staff, of course, is very important, but I think how do we make it more of a political process than a top-down hierarchy? Because we need to understand where does the knowledge reside in, in the Department of Defense. Yeah, I liked a lot of what Eric said there. The knowledge is not at the top, right? Uh, I'm a big fan of, of Bastier and the idea that the information and the control really needs to be decentralized. I think the most successful businesses in the world have a really tight strategy and very loose execution so that those who are executing while keeping their eye on the prize will uh, adjust the organization in order to get to that strategic objective. And we see that in, in a lot of very successful organizations. DOD, I believe, does the opposite. Every change in leadership, we see new strategy documents coming out, but we micromanage execution really tight, far too tight. And, and I think we would do better if maybe the Joint Chiefs are very clear about strategy, are very reluctant to change it, and then analyze the results of what's going on to see whether or not they're satisfied with that. Again, getting back to the exposed control and then let the services have a little more freedom to get to that objective in the way they know they can achieve it as opposed to the way they've been directed to achieve it. Thanks, Bill. And I think that I have another question that you're going to enjoy as well. So in the current system that requires a lot of stability, predictability, and very rigid, very planned way in advance, it's almost inevitable that because of that time lag, you would have unobligated budgetary authority at the end of any period of execution. 
should we not worry about unobligated budget authority and measure other things, maybe like output success? No, we should worry about unobligated budget authority for a couple of reasons. And this is where I'm going to take issue with one of your recommendations, Fred, and I know you knew I was going to do this. I think rolling over any of the funds does violence to the core idea inherent in a budget that X number of dollars is sufficient to do Z level of activity for one year. And so if we have leftover money, that means we either estimated wrong and could find no better use for that money, or we didn't get Z done, which begs the following question of why not you had the money. And the system, of course, needs to be trying to find the right word. It's not flexible, but it needs to forgive or realize that there are contingencies that come up like the face mask budget, right? And and so that's that's one issue I've got with that. The other issue is if an organization can't effectively manage that budget from October to September, I don't have any more faith they can manage it from October to December. And what that rollover does, uh, to use a sports analogy, the red zone offense for a football team is different than the offense when they're further back because they have less field. And so the way we manage the money is different at the end of the fiscal year because we have less time. And I understand that proposal says, make the end zone bigger so that we can continue to manage like we were managing earlier. But that completely disrupts the football game. It, it, it changes the game. And it would really change this idea of what is a budget. Every calendar I've looked at has September 30th on it. So it shouldn't be a surprise that it's coming up and we've got to get the money spent. So this is why I really advocate for more flexibilities, particularly late in the fiscal year. I understand Congress has the power of the person. I understand that they have a right to see what we're doing with reprogrammings and veto those if, if they wish. But I think in the last third or quarter of the year, speed up that process. If we send over a reprogramming action and they take no action in 10 session days, then it should be automatically approved. Let us move on because the clock is ticking and there needs to be some recognition of that or increase the thresholds so we could do more below threshold reprogrammings at the end of the year. I think it's really important because we built that budget so long ago that there has to be more flexibility in executing it so we can move those dollars to a place where they're better equipped. By rolling over the money, I think it actually exacerbates the problem because now we have quantified and justified the cut to the future year. And I, I yeah, I, I don't think the idea of having an obligated balance is a good thing, but I think we need to change this governance structure so we can manage it down to zero more effectively. You know, my idea is to actually give 100 yards of field for them to play. Congress has taken away the first 25, maybe 50 yards. I, I just want to extend the field a little bit so there is some room no. that you can actually pass and you don't have to run all the time. Oh, and I would love to see us send a budget over to Congress that says this budget assumes we will not see our money until 15 December, which is the historical average. But we're not going to do that because we're too polite in our government. I would agree with Phil there. I, I tend to believe that, again, like whatever that time limit on the obligation for your appropriation, I think that's fine. That's about good governance. And some of the issues like Phil pointed to are contractual in nature, right? Like I can't really get started on this long procurement action lead time contract because I don't have the money in the bank and I don't, or potentially this is a new start and I have a continuing resolution. So you have all these issues in the contracting realm, but the contracting realm, why are those procurement action lead times so long? Sometimes it's just because you have 
these huge kind of programs and huge contracts, and you're piling all these requirements into a single thing. And so if, again, if we fix the budget process at the front end and say, Hey, you guys have portfolios, not only would they be able to redirect money more easily without those reprogrammings. And I'm still a little bit scared because even with you raise the BTR threshold, it's more than 10 million or 20%, whichever is less. Even if you do raise that, you still hear people say it's very difficult just to get a BTR through. And sometimes Congress will even want to review that. So just because I raised the threshold doesn't mean it's actually going to be potentially that much easier. So fixing some of these portfolio aspects, not only can solve some of the ability to get contracts out faster, but it also restructures what we think of as a program, right? We are now potentially evolving independent systems of components and then quickly integrating high TRL stuff rather than having this big program with all these unique subsystems and hoping to God that they will all progress on schedule for integration at five years when I need to get through OT&E and then procurement money staring me in the face. So I will do anything and fix, do any kind of quick fixes that it might create high production or O&M costs. But as long as it gets me into an LRIP and gets me that procurement money, because changing that is so painful, even if there are other priorities throughout the department that money could be used for, it's not like you can just shift it over. So again, um, I'll, I'll just die on my sword of <laughs> looking at portfolio management rather than like, how can we use our political capital to solve these symptoms of issues? Let's go after the root cause. And on the reprogramming thing uh, question, what is really interesting is that the, the time where you eat a lot of time is both inside the Pentagon and after the request leaves the Pentagon. It's the, the whole time from uh, a, man, a financial manager identifies that there's a need for reprogramming or there, there's extra resources that could be reprogrammed for debt to travel all the way up to the comptroller and then to Congress, or even if it's just to travel all the way up to comptroller, it gives a thumbs up on it didn't show up on camera. And then it goes all the way back down to the financial manager. So there's that time lag that is going to, to exist. And, and also the secondary time lag when you get it up to Congress. One question that came from the audience and speaking of, about Congress, I think it, it, it would be interesting to get your views on, on it. A lot of the, the elements that we have been discussing would be good for DOD. And there's usually a pendulum between the amount of flexibility that Congress is willing to give and the, the level of micromanagement. Do you see any incentives for Congress to let go a little bit of the micromanagement? What would make Congress be willing to become a, a little exercise more oversight after the program is being executed rather than on the front end that both of you touched earlier in the program here? Yeah, so I'll go first, Eric. I, I I see few incentives for Congress to reduce its oversight. It's part of it. It's Congress does two things. They legislate and they oversee. And so I, I don't see much of an appetite for reducing that. But, and there is competition, right? There's always been competition between the branches over the budget. You know, just in the post-World War II era, you have Nixon impounding EPA and, and leading to the Impoundment Control Act. You've got, had the issue with President Trump and the border wall and and questionable use of authorities. And, and we do that a lot between the executive and the legislature. And that's part of the fabric of our country, right? The founding fathers almost designed a competition there with its checks and balances. At the same time, you can go too far with that oversight. If you go back and look at the 1980 Defense Authorization Bill, it's 18 pages long. 
If you look at the 2020 defense authorization bill, the table of contents alone is 39 pages long. So there, and it totals 1,120 pages. So do we need 62 times more oversight in the authorization bill in 2021 than we did in 1980 when we actually had a hollow force? I don't think so. Yeah, there's a balance that needs to be there between flexibility and control. And I think we've gone way overboard on the control side. I would frame it, I, I agree, but I would frame it slightly differently because the first thing I would want folks to understand, especially in Congress, is we're not trying to reduce oversight. We're trying to change the game of what oversight is. And the current style of oversight is not actually getting you the results. And so we need to, again, we, we presumed back in this 1950s, 60s era, that we could financialize everything and use universal metrics and third-party neutral experts to come in and, and determine what is right or what is wrong objectively. And that just turned out not to work. Just because something had a cost growth, I don't care what the cost growth is on a program, honestly. It's what was the starting base cost? What were the alternative choices of programs that could have been pursued? Could we have done it for cheaper in a different way, right? These are the questions that matter and not, did you execute to something that you said you would execute to 10 years ago? That kind of control and oversight isn't the style of oversight that I think matters in the digital era where we are going to be, well, first, right, we have to be able to leverage commercial technologies. We can't just pretend like DOD is going to pull all the technology from its requirements because it's so domineering and so far ahead anymore. That's just not the way it's going to be working. This commercial technology has a lot of investment in it. And of course, DOD needs its, its own specific tailoring and its own research and development programs, but the ability to take advantage of opportunities is just as important as its ability to predict and control what might happen in the future. And I think there's been some good comments, especially on the JADC2 joint all domain command and control front. It's like, how am I going to have a 5, 10, 20 year plan on JADC2 when I don't know what commercial networking is going to look like five years from now? Technology is moving really fast and we have to be able to integrate what is working in the commercial sector more quickly. And so this gets back to what were the alternatives? What's the opportunity cost? I don't care about the money cost. I care about the opportunity cost. And the opportunity cost is all contextual. So we need to change the game of what oversight is. Convincing members of Congress, the GAO, OMB, and folks in, in the OSD staff that this is in fact the case is the first part. Because I think everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants a better force structure for cheaper, right? We want to get do more for less, as Alan Anthoven says, right? More for less. But how do we get there is, is the point of debate. And I think we just need to convince, look, this oversight thing is actually the overarching structure that creates the incentives for the budget, PBBE requirements, the rest of those processes, and then filters down. So we need to look at that. And once we have a good framework for what oversight is, then we need to talk about what are the political incentives that go along with this that aren't necessarily related to what is the optimal force structure. And I know Phil says, let's not use the optimal word. We should ban that kind of word, right? But everyone is going to have interests involved. And we should also look back before. We didn't have an authorizations pr process until the 1960s. When did the authorization process come around? It's no, it's no coincidence that at the same time that we had the planning, programming, budgeting system implemented. Those things came hand in hand. What did we do before? I love how Truman uh, and his commission during World War II literally would just have investigations after investigations and actually go into specific contracts. And they brought thousands of people to go testify, root out any kind of mismanagement and, and really hold people accountable in that way. But congressmen didn't have as much say over 
whose district and, and what programs actually get authorized. And they actually had some kind of principled self-restraint before that, where they wouldn't be directing dollars to districts in the same way. Now, of course, similar things did happen with the Bureau and Arsenal system as well. You know, it, but like this kind of principled restraint is, a, is an interesting concept. And on, on that point, if oversight is holding you accountable to a plan that you made 10 years ago that you were unable to execute in, in those 10 years, it's only going to be a judgment on your ability to predict things, not on your actual ability to execute anything. And I think that partially touches what your broader point of like, how do how does Congress understands its role of oversight? It's not about maximizing or minimizing, but rather moving towards helping execute a program rather than just checking a box based on your plan, based on your 2010 plan, you said that you're going to wait 110 pounds, now you weigh 115, so you have a five-pound overrun over there. And the last comment that I, I want to bring is one comment from the audience, but it, it is from Pat Tao from CRS, and I read everything that Pat writes. And, and I think it would be a, a, a good last point for us to, to talk on. The fact of life is that people will use deadlines for leverage, and that applies from both sides of the river and wearing all colors of uniform. And, and I think that's very true in that process, which goes to the end zone analogy that Phil mentioned earlier. So are, are those deadlines still appropriate? How should we think about those deadlines? And my personal comment on that is that the human incentives, yes, uh, that there will always be those deadlines for leverage. We have one coming out on the debt ceiling when Congress might move some stuff. That's how the, you force congressional action. But I would like to hear from Eric and Phil before we adjourn. I tell my students when their homework is late, the deadlines exist for a reason. And that's about as good an answer as I have, right? They're, they're a control mechanism. And like many other control mechanisms we have in this system, and I think without deadlines, things can get a little out of control. There needs there need to be guideposts and markers. And I think that's why we have the acquisition system we have. We like to have these milestones and these gates and these decision points. You know, the notion of a fiscal year has existed for lo longer than our country. <laughs> and I think it is appropriate to, to stop and take an accounting, uh, review the requirements, review the estimates, and start afresh, right, with a new year. It would be nice if that transition was smoother. And I'm not sure how, to, how that should go. But honestly, for the vast majority of people in the Department of Defense, they don't notice October 1st. It's just the people who are the budget geeks like us and who notice that. And maybe it is okay. I don't know. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I think deadlines are important. I think they should exist. I actually think when we look at the trajectory of project management, it has moved from determine the technical baseline, and then cost estimate and schedule that out. And what we've seen with agile development processes says, I can't know exactly what the end product will be and then work my way back from that. I actually have to fix these increments of schedule and costs, and then basically iterate through those and develop product. And so I think there's, now that doesn't work for everything, but I think more and more things are going to be pushing in that direction as we move towards more software-defined stuff and hardware starts to take on elements of software. And so I think we need to move in that direction. And what we've seen from companies moving towards agile enterprise is learning from these startups that have grown, but needing to re reinvigorate themselves is you move from a project focus and percent complete basis, which looks a lot like the Department of Defense, to 
um, persistent teams, persistent agile teams. You fund those guys and they might make some structure along uh, with the operations. One of the things we might want to move to is this prediction and control thing. When you just look at the V22, it's supposed to replace the, the CH47. And it's just, we plan to replace it by the mid 80s. And then we didn't, we had to go through several cycles of the V22. And then it didn't actually come out like until uh, its operational capability until 2007. We predict that we're going to have these nice little follow-ons to our major programs, but they don't work out that way. We have these huge capability gaps, costs are higher, and now we're stuck in that kind of sole source program, and we believe the sunk cost fallacy. So moving towards this family of developments and you're dropping capabilities at regular time zones, whatever those things are, I think that's a kind of interesting way. And I'm not saying that's a cure, but that's like an interesting thought and other and programs can start moving to that to some degree. And I think that aligns with this whole kind of fiscal year concept. So I, again, I don't have a problem with the fiscal year. I think that's, a, I think all that stuff is fine. I think we just need to change the way we, we do programmatics and then it works within that construct. Exactly. A faster, more agile programming and budgeting phase would facilitate that kind of thinking. Yep. And, and at, at the end of the fiscal year, you can serve it as the natural end of a trial period that you can actually go back to your program and see how it actually performed. And on, on that note, I'd like to thank our, our panelists for sharing their, their insights in this conversation. And thanks to the audience for participating in it as well. And again, thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for the audience. And have a great day. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.